you're watching Stockwatch with me, Zanati Kuma. This evening, independent analyst Jim Umiaha and Jean-Pierre Ferstad from Protea Capital Management join me to unpack your stock-related questions. Do send those questions via SMS to 41392. Email stockwatch at bdtv.co.za or tweet us at businessdaytv using the hashtag stockwatch. Thanks so much for your time, gents. I'll start with you, Jimmy, who uh, joins us in the studio. Um, quite interesting moves that we are seeing in the markets today because it seemed that ahead of, of course, the markets know that the big uh, data point uh, this week is the U.S. inflation print. And I actually thought that because the markets were in the green yesterday, they kind of shrugged off caution and they had, uh, you know, decided that inflation is going to be in line with expectations and eventually the Fed would hold interest rates. But it seems now that there's a, a little bit of caution or risk, um, risk of uh, appetite creeping into the market. What's responsible for that? So the, the, the Fed conversation has been an interesting one that has developed for quite some time. I mean, we've, we've been tracking it since the pandemic and we know that every time there's been a deviation from what we thought was going to happen, it's caused something in the market. And I think at the moment, investors, asset managers, um, traders are looking at these statements and saying, we are aware that there is a Fed rate hike outstanding. Okay. We're not sure when, we're not sure how, we're not sure what it looks like. And um, obviously Jay Powell and his team aren't helping that situation at all by saying, guys, we will make the decision as the data points suggest we should, right? So the market wants to see things move in a particular direction because for the longest time, everything's been sort of under pressure. Everything's been at the mercy of what we hear on interest rates and inflation. And I think the market has exhausted that narrative. The market is tired of hearing, have we peaked on rates? Have we not? What are we doing? What's happening? So the inflation print still is important because at the end of the day, if the Fed comes out and says, we're now taking this decision based on this latest print, it doesn't line up with what we think. The market is going to say, hang on, but I mean, you know, you, you didn't really prepare us for this, but the Fed is going to say we did because we told you <laughs> we're not done. So the market is exhausted, tired of these rate hikes, wanting to see the opportunity to get some level of risk on sentiment back in. Mm. But until the number actually comes out and the closer we get to that number, the more confidence you might see from investors saying, hang on, we, ought, we, we might hit the number or, or that sort of thing. I think it's just very much a, the narrative has changed so much in the past that right now it's, can we just get it done and just, you know, yeah. get back to trying to make profits and trying to get returns through? Uh, all right. Uh, JP, quite interesting moves also on the JSC today. I see that Kumba Iron Ore was consistently up by about 5%. Anglo Gold Ashanti as well, uh, surging by about 3.5%. Uh, uh, anything you'd like to say on those uh, big moves that we are seeing in terms of uh, the, the, those uh, company share prices? I will say I'm not happy because I'm not long commodities. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> no, so uh, I'll, I'll comment on the Anglo Gold Ashanti one. So they did say that uh, they got all the approvals for the externalization effectively of the company. They're listing in New York for a primary listing. So very soon there'll be a secondary listing on the JSE, an inward listing. That means their weight on a lot of indices will decrease, local indices. But at the same time, they might be included in international indices. So the share price uh, took that positive um, in terms of that uh, all the approvals have been uh, obtained. And uh, for the rest of the commodity sector, yes, Kumba up, but some platinum's down. It's all over the place and everyone's focusing on China, uh, the, the bumpy recovery in China. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, what goes into the 
housing sector where you need a lot of steel and therefore iron ore, that's an input to that sector versus the automotive sector where the PGMs go in, where you have the EV motor vehicles taking over from the ICE motor vehicles, internal combustion engines. And that means a move away from platinum and palladium. So yes, a, a lot of movements today that are some indication of some broader trends and some longer term trends that are happening. Ah, all right. Um, let's go into the questions. Uh, JP, I'm not asking you about uh, Capitec for obvious reasons. Uh, so I'll come to you, Jimmy. <laughs> Uh, what's your take on Capitec? Uh, do you think the hype of the upcoming dividends might help the price break through the 1,780 resistance? I think the uh, announcements that came out, uh, obviously, when, when we got that um, voluntary update last yeah. week, that was very telling. Um, headline earnings per share and basic earnings per share expected to be up. Um, but more telling was the underlying communication around um, their provisions. So we saw provisions out of Standard Bank, out of APSA, out of NetBank saying, hang on, guys, provisions are up record numbers, 40%, 50% in some areas, mm -hmm. that sort of thing, bad debts, not looking good and all of that. And Capita came out and said, you know what, provisions are actually on the conservative side for us. And you saw that, you saw that share price, the market, it sort of started to price in um, leading up to that uh, voluntary announcement. The market had sort of extrapolated, okay, the banking sector looks like this, therefore Capitec would also naturally look like that. And when Capitec came out and said, no, we, we think we've done a bit better, the market was like, oh, thank you. So, yeah. so everybody's excited to now see the numbers. As to whether or not we'll break that resistance level, I think it's uh, going to be a, a, an interesting time. It might be dependent on uh, some of the other macro data points that we look at from a South African point of view. Um, again, interesting rates rearing its ugly head in that situation. Um, the performance of banks, the banks have been able to remain resilient. They've been able to sort of benefit from elevated interest rates. But again, the downside is that um, risk of provisions and that sort of thing. So when we get those numbers around the 25th, it'll be very telling of the bank's position uh, coming into coming out of sort of H1, but also what the bank sees going forward as what could be some of their touch points, what could be some areas that they might be concerned about. And if those areas differ from some of their banking peers, yes, you could very well see them break through that. Um, whether or not it'll be a sustained breakthrough remains to be seen, because at the end of the day, it's still the South African picture as a whole is under pressure. The South African consumer remains under pressure. And that's going to filter through. I mean, when you have more than 20 million South Africans banking with you, what happens to those consumers happens to you as well. Yeah. All right. I hear your point on that. Uh, let's move on. JP, uh, what does the panel feel about Caxton? Uh, results are fairly impressive. Of course, we did have those results coming out last week of Friday uh, with HIPS up at 20%. They also declared a dividend that was up at 20%. Your take on Caxton, JP? So good set of results. I mean, both the, the packaging and the print businesses looked quite solid. I think it was specifically the packaging businesses that did well. And then they have this big stake in impact. So uh, if you and excess cash. So if you add the operations, the excess cash and the stake in impact, uh, there's a lot more value in the Caxton business that is reflected in the share price. So one would think it's very cheap. The problem is it's been cheap for a very, very long time. And it seems like even though there's a lot of value inside of Caxton, outside shareholders rarely get to see this value. And that is part of the problem. So it's a very long-standing management team that has a 
a revenue share contract as well with the company, which is not the best corporate governance. Um, and you don't see the cash being distributed to shareholders. You see being reinvested and getting to messy fights like the impact situation. So for me, even though it's cheap, there's a lot of cheap shares on the JSC. I look for high quality shares that are good value. And I would say that notwithstanding the cheapness, I would not be a holder of Caxon because of the quality issue. That's actually very interesting uh, that one must also ask as much as you have these attractive uh, shares, sometimes you have to ask why are they so cheap? So cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on Caxton? <laughs> no, no, no. I, th I, I agree with um, JP in uh, his assessment in that um, a lot of what he said around Caxton um, made me think of another share on the JSC yes. that is historically cheap that also reported results. You and I spoke about this yeah. off air, and that's, and that's the City Lodge side of it as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the distinct difference there is that last closing point that JP made around the fact that um, the, those internal squabbles and those sorts of things affect how the share is then perceived. If you look at the management and what um, the guys like City Lodge have done, mm -hmm. um, pretty much the same situation as Caxton, very valuable assets, very um, discounted at the stage, those sorts of things. They've managed to manage debt uh, really well. And all of the factors that JP outlined around Caxton are relevant to something like City Lodge. But it's a key differentiator when you look at the management internal mm. setup and that's something that translates to another stock transaction capital yeah ceo's just um david is on, on his yeah. way out as a result of um a, an array of things yeah. that i mean i'm sure the, the the tc guys would um comment on and give conversations on yeah. but um, if we look at the the founders and what's happened there as well they've got their own take and that sort of thing so okay you are running away <laughs> I actually want to drill into City Lodge because there is yeah. a question on City Lodge. Um, before I get to JP, um, City Lodge re released a very positive result, yet the market has not responded. That was also a surprise to me. Uh, why is City Lodge valued uh, under five? Uh, uh, occupancies, room rates, and revenues are up uh, from 2018-19, yet their share price is a fraction therefrom. What is the panel's thoughts on City Lodge? So what can you uh, drill this down to? I think it's down to um, the market. Right. So the hotel and leisure space took quite a bit of a hit. City Lodge was on the receiving end of that to quite a large extent. We look at the pandemic numbers. We were back up. We were above six rand or seven rand a share um, sort of October of 2019 pre-pandemic. We are back above pre-pandemic levels in terms of occupancy rates, as um, the viewer rightly yeah. uh, mentioned. Um, if you look at the numbers, the, the, the set of numbers that came out of City Lodge was stellar. Um, revenues were up 55 percent. They've turned from from headline loss to headline uh, profit up 452% their uh, headline uh, hips headline prof, um, earnings per share. Uh, they've reduced their debt by 50%. They now are cash flush as well. So they've really, really done a lot to improve the financial position of the business. And ordinarily, you'd think, okay, cool, that's, that's you know, th those are good signs. You look at someone like Sun International that put out results the same day, yeah. their revenues were up 10-odd um, percent. They're close to 6 billion rand there. They're benefiting from the gaming business. And um, I think the, the market is seeing City Lodge as, oh, you guys are a good stock, but you're not a Sun International. But if you think about it and you look at the fact that Soho Sun owns 10% of City Lodge and we could realistically see 
the, there is a potential to see a gaming side being introduced into City Lodge. That's something that's a game changer for someone like City Lodge. They've gotten the balance sheet right. The business has got good quality assets. They've got good um, locations all around. Both companies, Sun International and City Lodge, have come out to say they're focusing on renewables because um, they can't afford to be at the mercy of ESCOM anymore and all of that. City Lodge has been doing it uh, quite aggressively. Mm. They've outlined how they're going to continue that. Mm-hmm. They've out, um, I think they've earmarked about $300 million uh, odd for CapEx for yeah. 2024. A lot of that's going to go into infrastructure, renewals, and ensuring that they're off the grid and that sort of thing. So mm. the business is absolutely stellar, but you saw the share price. Sun International was up 6.5%. Um, the uh, City Lodge actually was down for the day about half a percent or about two-thirds of a percent. Yeah, even so, today it's down, yeah. Yeah, so I think the, the market has seen City Lodge, the same thing that JP mentioned around Caxton just having been consistently at that yes. price. City Lodge has been consistently between 4 and 4 and 80. It has it's struggled to break above 5 rand, yeah. um, even with the results and that sort of thing. I think if we get sentiment and, and we get the full year results and those numbers look even more impressive and there's a bit more risk appetite to it as well. So it's a, it, it's a function of a couple of factors. It's yeah. not isolated to the market yes. conditions. Or, but what it is commendable is the management team has worked hard to get the business into the position to say, guys, yeah. we are attractive for investment. Yeah. And it's just, I guess, a timing issue now. All right. I feel like there's so many interesting questions today. I actually would like an hour with you guys today, but that's not happening. Uh, JP, I was going to come back to you with uh, City Lodge. Uh, Of course, they're churning out such good numbers and just even their strategy. um, Really, Jimmy spoke about the capex that they're going to be spending on uh, uh, refurbishments and all that, that sort of stuff. But it seems that they're just not winning with the market. What do you think about it? So I do like uh, City Lodge as a business and as a stock. I think there is uh, value in the share price. I would just caution anyone that's comparing City Lodge today to pre-COVID, to pre-early 2020. Um, They had an external finance BE deal that was linked effectively to the share price. And when the share price went down, that debt was triggered and they needed to do a very dilutive rights issue to pay off that debt. And that means you have more than 10 times the number of shares outstanding today than what you had before early 2020. So a five rand share price today in City Lodge is effectively equivalent to more than 50 rand per share before 2020. So just be aware that that dilution of the rights issue Mm. really meant that um, the City Lodge share price is not comparable to where it traded before early 2020. Mm, All right. All right, I hear both your points there. Uh, let's move on to the higher LSM. Uh, uh, Richmond, could anyone shed some light on how one goes about recovering the 20% of the 35% withholding tax levied by the Swiss authorities? Jimmy, very too technical for me. <laughs> um, best to consult a tax consultant. Uh, the double taxation system, the countries will withhold tax uh, in their respective jurisdictions, but you would then be able to go the SARS route and proving um, that you've been double taxed and that sort of thing, and there's reimbursements. But again, tax is so technical because of listings and that sort of thing. Are you holding the share in South Africa? Are you holding it in an offshore portfolio? Does it form part of your um, offshore income, local income, those sorts of things? Consult a tax consultant, probably ah. your best option. Ah, all right. Well, let's move on to Sasol. Uh, JP, coming to you. The world's most important commodity being oil 
is on the rise at over $90 a barrel. And the rand is weak against the dollar, hovering above 19, well, just below 19 rand to the dollar. Uh, Sasol should be smiling all the way to the bank, but the share price is barely moving and trades at a discount to global peers. Panel's view on oil breaching $100 and Sasol. Uh, JP? Mm. So I am bullish on the share price and therefore bullish on Sasol. There are two things to mention. The first one is that Sasol does have the big Lake Charles facility in the US and their gas is an input to them effectively producing uh, plastics. And therefore, um, that has got a different dynamic to the oil price. And that dynamic has not been as good for them. Hmm. Secondly, in South Africa, remember that their input is mostly coal. And they produce petroleum from coal. And coal has gone through the roof. So even though they own a lot of mines, there's a high opportunity cost, or there has been the last 18 months, for them to produce locally. But then the biggest issue of all is potentially their emission footprint. So if you take coal <laughs> and you produce petroleum from it, it's an extremely dirty process. Mm. And that's why Secunda is still the single biggest emitter of uh, uh, pollutant gases in the world as a single site. And therefore, even though if you're positive on the oil price, you might not see it in the Sassel share price, there are much effectively better quality companies out there, offshore in the US, big petroleum companies. They aren't producing their petroleum from coal. They're pumping it out of the ground, whether from the seabed or from shell gas, uh, aquifers. So I would prefer one of the other providers because Sassol has got these emission issues that they need to deal with as well. Yeah, all right. Uh, quickly, Jimmy, because I do want to go to transaction capital as well. Do you think that the oil price could get to $100? Realistically, it could. We know that OPEC, um, following uh, what happened in April of 2020, we shall not mention the event. It was mm -hmm. horrific for everybody, um, especially for OPEC. And they've, they've taken a very clear stance on that. They've, uh, they, they've said... Our comfort price is anywhere between 80 and $100 a barrel. If we go beyond that, then it's okay. We're not too bothered because we're making more money. But what we don't want is we don't want to go below $80 a barrel, right? So supply cuts are in effect because they want to maintain that price. Mm -hmm. So realistically, it's about how the OPEC plus countries see demand recovery. We know that China is a huge component of this picture because of the amount of oil that they consume and import. And with the recent announcement now around the BRICS 11 plus now, uh, that's going to change a different dynamic to how that whole conversation pans out um, and what it potentially means for the oil market. We know Saudi Arabia can supply the oil. That's mm -hmm. not the issue. We know that they have no shortage there. We know that there's still ongoing tensions as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. Those things are still factors there. But what, what, the most important factor to take into consideration here is that OPEC Plus is controlling that price. And it's not down to whether or not we want to see global recoveries, global increases, global demands. It's about whether or not they're comfortable with the demand levels as to how the price is reacting at that point. All right. Talking about price reactions, uh, transaction capital was down about 27% today. Of course, um, after that, uh, those announcements after market close yesterday. There's a question here. Transaction capital, Aina, I feel that. Opportunity or falling knife, JP? So it's been Aina for me as well. <laughs> I have been long transaction capital shares in the last few months. What I would say is 
On the one hand, the disappointment was the announcement of last night that the second half did not go quite as well as they thought it would. Mm. They thought that uh, we buy cars would recover, to be flat in terms of profitability for the year. The final announcement was no, it's going to be down 20%. Newton also had a tougher second half than expected. And then SA Taxi continuing, the, uh, continuing its struggles. That's obviously where the vast majority of the debt of the group is. And there was a lot of uncertainty regarding how much of the debt is really ring-fenced or will the management of the group effectively um, capitulate and allow some cross-default uh, uh, um, swaps, uh, cross-default provisions to be put in place to, uh, to, uh, to have banks finance uh, SA Taxi further, but then pull the rest of the group into danger. So it sounds like they've bought themselves at least uh, six months more time. SA Taxi or Mobilize has got six months of financing left. And now we need to wait for the new management team with uh, the founders, or at least uh, Mr. Giorno being involved now again. I think the incentives are aligned. Mm-hmm. He's also having an ANAP because he's a big shareholder himself. And that will align the interest of shareholders and management. I believe that they won't imperil the whole group and they have now another six months to try and rectify the SA Taxi ship. And if it cannot be rectified, then they potentially need to put SA Taxi in business rescue. But those decisions will need to be made in roughly six months' time. Mm, not that much, much enough for David Hurwitz. Uh, there's a second part of the question for you, Jimmy. It seems that the shareholder fund buffer for transaction capital's bondholders has been wiped out. And they are now next in line to take a hit. Which bond securities are exposed to transaction capital so I can avoid them? Transaction capital <laughs> has 17 billion rand bond exposure. Um, I, I haven't actually had a look at the specific bond securities, but just to come back to um, what JP mentioned around that ANA for the founders. Mm. It's a 4 billion rand ANA. Before that drop in March, their, the, the founders holding was probably worth around um, five odd billion in terms of market cap at the time and the share price where it was trading. And now that's, that's probably sitting at about just under a billion or close to a billion. So that mm. ANAR is significant enough to have them say, hang on, maybe we need to make some adjustments. Yeah. And to that extent, um, I think on the bond side of it, it's... It comes back to something else JP mentioned around the fact that some decisions that need to be made now need to be made looking at that, looking at the fact that you have this debt, um, this is how it sits. And I would caution against making um, quick decisions against uh, the yeah. news that we have. I mean, yeah. it's one thing to say, I want to stay away from them. Great. But it's, an, it's a whole other conversation to say, I want to short those bonds or I want to um, sell out if I've, if I've held through. So you've gone through the pain with them. I want to get out and that sort of thing. Because at this stage, with the founders coming back and the founders returning, um, I, the hope and the, the expectation is that the founders will then steer the ship back on course the way they had it beforehand. And that could be um, a very good thing for the business at this stage. It could be much needed for the business. Uh, and I think it's an, the, the other interesting thing that sits on transaction capital's head is um, the mm-hmm. business is very concentrated in its 
portfolio at this stage. And so that's why that SA taxi business has such a significant impact. Um, I think maybe what we could see, and JP is very right to say, we have to wait for six months to see what happens. We could very well see transaction capital coming out and saying, we're acquiring something else. Mm. Uh, it lines up with what we want. We think we're going to get value out of it and we're going to leverage off of that while we sort out the SA taxi business because yeah. that might not turn around in six months, but we've got a plan for it. Yeah. So very, very cautious to um, preempt certain decisions, but if you want to stay away from them, I'm sure happy to look into what bonds uh, specifically are there. And yeah. All right. All right. All right. We do have to cut it uh, there. Uh, onto your stock picks, gents. I think we have about 20 seconds for each of you. JP, what will it be? I'm picking HCI, Investment Holding Company. It also had a near-death experience with debts just after COVID, but it got through that without a rice issue. It has exposure to Southern Sun Hotels, Double Sun Gaming, also uh, themes we've spoken about today where I'm bullish, as well as to oil through their second impact oil and gas. Uh, some big finds in Namibia. I'm hoping for some positive news very soon. So if you put all the bits together, I still get a valuation above the current share price of HCI with the management team that are aligned with shareholders. So uh, that's my stock pick tonight. All right. On your side, Jimmy, 20 seconds. <laughs> I've given out the stock pick before. It's Citigroup, the bank in the US, gave it out at $44. Is that $40 at the moment? Uh, like the share, good dividend yield, undervalued where compared to its banking peers, almost undervalued by about 50% on um, fair market estimations. Mm -hmm. We seem to have avoided a U.S. banking crisis. We seem to have stabilized, and they are well positioned to continue to provide you with an attractive dividend yield. All right. As I said, I would have liked the show to be an hour, but don't worry, Stockwatch is back tomorrow. So the questions that we did not get to today, Julieta will be answering tomorrow. So that is all for Stockwatch this evening. Thanks to our guest, independent analyst, Jimmy Muyaha and John Pifferstaff from Protea Capital Management. Coming up next, the close. Stay watching.